Welcome to Right to the Point, a podcast featuring honest conversation about biblical solutions to America's cultural challenges. Hi, I'm Tim Throckmorton of LifePoint Ministries. To uh, learn more about LifePoint and to access past episodes of Right to the Point podcast and commentary, and if you'd like to support the podcast, just visit lifepointusa.org. So glad that you've joined us today. In this episode, we're going to talk about America's godly heritage. And to do so, I've invited my good friend, Bill Federer. Uh, Bill's a nationally known speaker, best-selling author, and president of AmeriSearch. His American Minute radio feature is broadcast daily across the nation. His faith and history television airs across America. His first book, by the way, I have copies of that in my office right now, signed by Bill, America's God and Country Encyclopedia of Quotations, sold over half a million copies. Bill Federer, welcome to Right to the Point. Tim, great to be with you. Well, listen, I, I know that uh, you're traveling, and we're glad that you've taken some time to be with us, but I wanted uh, not only to have you on to talk about our heritage as as Americans, but also to give us a biblical perspective of what's happening right now. And I suppose one of the top items on a lot of folks' mind around the country as we record this is the Asbury Revival and how that has spilled out into other parts or other universities, colleges around the country, and hopefully into churches along the way. And as a nation, we kind of find our founding, uh, find our biblical moorings as a nation in a season of revival, don't we? Yes, and um, it's unique to America, Um, you know, uh, and then spreading around the world. Um, One of the things I like to start with is the big picture. And I have spent several years researching every century of recorded human history to find out what the, what the government is, what's the most common form of government. And it, it's kings. Nimrod, Pharaoh, Caesar, Kaiser, Sultan, Tsar, Maharaja, Genghis Khan, Julius Caesar, Tildan. The history of the world is predominantly the history of kings. And that's the norm. Power wants to concentrate into the hands of one person. It's uh, the fallen human nature, Cain, Kill, and Abel. St. Augustine called it libido dominandi, the lust to dominate. So you put some kids on a playground, one's the bully. You put some junior high girls in a clique, one's the diva. You put some people in the woods, one of them is an Indian chief. You put them in an inner city, one of them is a gang leader. And, And that's the norm, and it's a hierarchical system. If you are friends with the king, you are more equal. If you are not friends with the king, you are less equal. And if you're an enemy of the king, you're dead. It's called treason or you're a slave. People say, I thought slavery started in 1619. No, wherever you had the first king on top, you had slaves on the bottom. And so these kingdoms keep getting bigger until finally the king of England had the biggest. The sun never set on the British Empire. He had India, Australia, New Zealand, Hong Kong, British Guyana, Canada, Barbados, Bermuda, Jamaica, and, um, and America. And so America's founders decided they didn't like this globalist king telling us what to do. So they broke away and flipped it and made the people the king. And, um, and so I get into the, the uh, details of this. Yeah. So you have um, Martin Luther starts the Reformation in 1517. Okay. And so you have populations in different countries becoming Protestant. And you had kings that did not like that. And so in 17, excuse me, 1572, 
the king of Spain sends his army under the command of the Iron Duke of Alba to the Netherlands to commit the Spanish Fury, where they kill tens of thousands of Protestants in Antwerp, Holland, just leave their bodies in the streets. And then in 1572, you have the Queen of France, Catherine de Medici, and she has a wedding with her daughter Margaret to the number one Protestant leader in France, Henry of Navarre. About 15% of France is Protestant. They're called Huguenots. And two days after the wedding in Paris, with all these Protestant leaders there, she has her soldiers pull chains across the streets so carriages cannot leave town. And she sends her soldiers house to house, and they kill 30,000 Protestant leaders and throw their bodies in the Seine River and then goes out across the country. So um, what do you do with Romans chapter 13? It says that all governing authorities are set up by God and that we're supposed to submit to the governing authorities. Well, in the fr- what do you do if the king literally wants to kill your wife and kids? Good question. Well, are you supposed to just say, okay, here, here's my wife and kids. Go ahead and kill them. So in the French-speaking area of Switzerland, you had a guy named John Calvin. And he writes, when kings disobey God, they abrogate their power. They unking themselves. He said, we are subject to those who rule over us, but subject only in the Lord. If they command anything contrary to God's word, then we are obligated not to obey them. And so it's basically where the Bible says, children, obey your parents. But what if the parent tells the kid to sell themselves into prostitution and kill the neighbor and sell drugs. I mean, is the kid supposed to, okay, I'm going to sell myself into prostitution and kill the neighbor? No, the kid obeys the parent as long as the parent's telling him stuff that lines up with God's word. And so 1963, Martin Luther King Jr., letter from the Birmingham jail, he says, people ask me, how can you obey some laws and not others? He says, the answer lies in the fact that there are two kinds of laws, just and unjust. He said, we have a moral obligation to obey just laws. Conversely, we have a moral obligation to disobey unjust laws. How does one decide what law is just or unjust? He goes, a just law lines up with the law of God. And so here we are today, and we have the government telling us stuff that does not line up with the law of God. And so you have some, oh, Romans 13, submit to the government. It's like, no, the (laughs) government's lost its authority when it tells us to do something contrary to God's word. So these followers of John Calvin call themselves Calvinists. In England, they're called Puritans. And they study how to have a government without a king. And they come up with a covenant form of government. And their model is the Bible. But what part of the Bible? that first 400 years out of Egypt before King Saul. So it's the original plan God gave to Israel, and it's Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, Deuteronomy, Joshua, Judges, Ruth, first Samuel, up until Samuel anoints King Saul. And so the kings of Europe looked to the Bible for their authority, but they looked to the King Saul and on period of the anointed king. Good point. The Calvinist Puritans looked to the pre King Saul period, where the people rule themselves without a king. And so Saul is the divider between Europe and America. The Christianity kings in Europe, they look to the Bible, but they look to the King Saul and on as the anointed king, and you do what he says. 
America, we looked at the pre-King Saul, the original plan, that it's people ruling themselves without a king. Yeah. And it works because every single citizen is taught the law and every citizen is personally accountable to God to follow the law. So you're about to steal. Nobody's around. You know you can get away with it. And then you think, God's watching me. He wants me to be fair. He's going to hold me accountable in the future. Maybe I should hesitate stealing. And it creates something in your head called a conscience. Yeah. So for people to rule themselves without a king, they need to be educated and have morals. And what motivates them to follow these morals is they're accountable to God. Yeah. Kings motivate people through fear. And so Montesquieu, the French philosopher, said that the, 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 the spring, like a spring of a clock, but he says the, the motivating force of a king is fear. Uh, but the motivating force of a republic is the people having virtue, having morals. And, and, um, and so this was studied by these Calvinist Puritans, and they formed it into a covenant form of government. So you get rights from God, and you are fair to your neighbor because you're accountable to God. You get blessings from God, and you're generous to your neighbor because you're doing it as unto God. <laughs> and so it's a covenant form of government that these pilgrims brought to New England, and it became our government form of government. Yeah. And I, I trace that in my different talks. Yeah. Well, the, the, the enamoring sense of looking at communism and socialism, it it's just reminds me of the people calling out to Samuel, give us a king. Uh, let's go back to this. Let's, let's let someone else rule over us because then government becomes uh, the king. It, it undoes all that our founders set in place to give us the greatest freedom the world's known. Yeah, and you bring out a really good point, is that socialism is counterfeit Christianity. And the difference is between the word voluntary and involuntary. So the early believers voluntarily sold their property and laid the money at the feet of the apostles, the church. Yeah. They didn't have the government take away their property and then be forced to lay it at the feet of Pilate. Here, Roman government, here's a little more money for you. It's like, great, yeah, we want to spread our Roman empire. And, um, you know, I wrote a book. It's called Socialism, the Real History from Plato to the Present. And you think, why Plato? Well, he's the first one that talked about everybody owning everything in common. And it sounds nice until you think it through. Somebody has to be in the government handing out the common stuff. And they're always going to be tempted to funnel a little extra to their family and friends on the side <laughs> yes. and hold back from someone they don't like. And before you know it, it gets discretionary. And the saying is, he who holds the purse strings has the power. Yeah. So every attempt at everybody owning everything equally always ends up with a deep state bureaucracy passing out favors to their friends with the most corrupt guy at the top, a dictator. And it, as our friend Bob McEwen likes to say, it only works that way every time. Uh, yeah. And it's going to it's gonna take us farther and farther away from God. But these principles that began this nation, that founded uh, our, our, our republic, th these things are timeless as well. And where they're employed, they bring great blessing. I was, you know, reading in Jeremiah 29 this morning, studying there where, you know, seek the welfare of the city, where you are, the peace of the city where you are, because as it's blessed, you'll be blessed. 
And it's it's funny. The thing that can bring the most blessing is is turned around and, and fake news or distorted truth seems to carry the day. Yeah. Now, one of the things I dissect, so to speak, is the two waves of pastors that formed America. Okay. In the 1600s, you had these Calvinist Puritans, and they had their congregational form of church government that they made into their community government. You literally had a pastor, Thomas Hooker, and his church founded Hartford, Connecticut. And the church members in 1638 <clears throat> come to him and they say, Pastor, can you preach a sermon on how we are supposed to set up our government? And so he does. He says the foundation of authority is laid in the free consent of the people, a bottom-up form of government. Well, the king of England could care less about the free consent of the people. You do what his consent is. <laughs> and But that's actually reflected in our declaration, government from the consent of the governed. Yeah. And so... The um, they simply they had one building in town called a meeting house. That's where the pastor would teach the Bible, and that's where they would gather together and do their city business. The word synagogue means meeting house. Yeah. That's where the rabbi would teach the law, and that's where they would gather together and do their city business. I mean, why build a separate building just to talk about a different topic? Yeah. And so in New England, everybody's involved in the congregational church, and everybody's involved in the government. And so it, it warrants a little examination of church governments for a moment that um, for the uh, thousand years, you had a hierarchical form of government, right? In the Catholic church and then the Anglican church, right. um, where the king was the head of the Anglican church and then the archbishop of Canterbury and the archbishop of York and the deaneries and vicars and curates and rectors and priests. And your relationship with God is through this hierarchical structure. It's called clergy laity. The clergy does all the ministry and the laity is lazy and watches. Well, the congregational model is uh, where the pastor gets everyone to have their own relationship with God, the father through Jesus Christ who died on the cross for their sins and then coaches them to be a mature Christian, get in the habit of reading the Bible every day like you were talking about reading from Jeremiah and, yeah. and um, praying and then plugging into the body and doing something. Nursery, children's church, junior high, outreach, because anything that's alive takes in and gives out. Any muscle to grow has to be exercised. You don't just hear a sermon. You have to hear it and then do something. Put yourself in a position where you're in front of somebody with a need. Yeah. And watch the Holy Spirit speak through you and give you ideas and minister to you and you be generous and, and the Lord will use you to meet the need. And as that water flows through you, you'll taste the, the living water. You'll taste that life going through you and, and you'll even be amazed. You're like, wow, I, I said some pretty profound things there. I didn't know I knew that. Well, you didn't. It was the Holy Spirit that gave you the words to say, but that, that life flows through you. And, and the person experiences the love of God through a real person, you, and, and you get to experience the joy of the Lord, of the Lord using you. And, um, and so this is called the congregational model. And it's where Jesus said, upon this rock, I'll build my church. Well, the Greek word he uses upon this rock, I'll build my ecclesia. E-K, ek, means out of, and ecclesia means a calling. In Athens, the Greek city, they had 6,000 citizens, and they would call them out of their homes to the marketplace, the agora, and they would all work together to 
figure out how to run the city. Uh, somebody has to fix the potholes in the road. Somebody has to fix the bridge. Somebody has to fix the walls. Somebody has to teach the kids. Somebody has to get our Navy going. Somebody, and they divvy up responsibilities. And, um, and of course, he that's faithful in the very little shall be entrusted with much. And, and so you, uh, you have an educated populace and you, you have everybody involved. And, um, and so Jesus says, it, upon this rock I'll build my church, he's talking about the body. The eye, ear, foot, everybody's something and everybody does something, but we're all different parts and we work together. And uh, and so this congregational model is what the pilgrims were. Yeah, It's what these Calvinist Puritans were. And so in New England, this was the model. Everybody is involved in church and everybody's involved in the government. And the king did not like that. He liked the hierarchical model. And so he would take these, these congregate. Now the the form of church government was congregational, but doctrinally they were the Baptists and the Congregationalists and then later Quakers and the different groups. But it was basically uh, George Bancroft was the secretary of the Navy. And he says, Puritanism exalted the laity. Yeah. All of a sudden the, the people are supposed to rise up and do something. Exactly. And um, anyway, so that's the 1600s. The 1700s, you have the German Lutheran pietists, and they said it's more than a plan. Uh, you have to have an experience with Jesus, and when you do, your life will change, and you won't do the worldly things you used to do, like go to bars and brothels and lewd theater and get involved in government. Wait, what, what was, that last, <laughs> was that last thing? Yeah, government's filled full of worldly people, so if you're really Christian, you won't be involved in government. So whereas the Calvinist Puritan says, hey, everybody gets involved. This is a way for us to rule ourselves without a king. It's yeah. a plan. It's a really good plan. Yeah. And the, then the Lutheran Pietist is like, no, no, no. It's more than a plan. It's an experience with Jesus. And when you have it, you're not going to be involved. You're going to withdraw. You're going to be holy. <laughs> and so this is um, the German concept of the two kingdoms. So Martin Luther had a personal revelation that just shall live by faith. So personal to him. He was willing to stand up to the Pope and the Holy Roman Emperor and say, unless you can prove me wrong from Scripture, here I stand, so help me God. Yeah. Very personal to him. But some German princes said, this is my chance. Kingdom of mine, uh, guess what? I just decided you're all Lutheran. And so for the people <laughs> in these German kingdoms, they're like, okay, king, uh, we're Lutheran. Uh, what do we believe? <laughs> so for the people in the kingdom, it's not the same personal revelation Martin Luther had. It's just a new state doctrine. So a revival movement starts called pietism that says being a Christian is more the doctrine. You have to have this experience with Jesus. And when you do, you're going to uh, withdraw from worldly things, including government. And so this turned into the German concept of the two kingdoms, the kingdom of the world, the kingdom of the church, the two don't touch the secular, the sacred, and four centuries of that allowed Hitler to put Jews on train cars and they would go past the churches crying out for help. And the church's response was, well, that's the government doing that. We can't do anything about it because that's the government circle and we're in the church circle. So, so let's just, let's just sing praise songs louder to Jesus. Yeah. yeah. Can, can anybody see there's something wrong with that? That's right. That's and, right. um, so, um, and, and you know the story. So the founder of the Lutheran Church in America was Henry Muhlenberg, and he yeah. had two sons, yes, John Peter and Frederick Augustus, and they're pietists. They're not getting involved pastors. And the revolution starts, and John Peter hears Patrick Henry's Give Me Liberty, Give Me Death speech, and he goes to George Washington, says, I want to help. Washington says, I'm going to make you a colonel. Go get your men. And so he goes to uh, 
his church, and he preaches a sermon out of Ecclesiastes, a time for all things, time to gather stones, time to scatter stones, time to preach, and a time to fight. And he takes off his black clerical robe, and underneath he has a uniform of a continental officer. And he uh, goes on to be a general. He fights at Yorktown. After the war, he's elected to Congress. His statue, and, and you've led tours there in the Capitol, his yeah. statue is right there in the U.S. Capitol. Yes, sir. With his clerical robe half off and his uniform. And, um, and while this is going on, his brother, Frederick Augustus, is writing him letters saying, you have become too involved in matters, which as a preacher, you have nothing whatsoever to do. <laughs> yes. And John Peter writes back and accuses Frederick of being a Tory British sympathizer. <laughs> Frederick writes back and says, well, I just can't serve two masters. And, um, and then the British invade New York and burn Frederick's church. And then he has a change of heart yeah. and says, maybe I do need to get involved. After the war, he's elected to Congress and he's elected the first speaker of the House. Yeah. Yeah. Right, the first speaker of the U.S. House of Representatives is Lutheran pastor, pietist turned getting involved, Frederick Augustus Muhlenberg. And his brother, John Peter, is a congressman in that first session of Congress. And what do they pass in that first session? The First Amendment. Yes. Does, does anybody honestly think that these two pastors would vote to outlaw themselves? Would they say, oh, pastors aren't supposed to be involved in politics, even yeah. though we are pastors and we are involved? It, it's a great story. And, and, you know, the backstory to their history and their way of thinking was important. Thank you for that. And that's what I love about you, Bill. You you give us the deep backstory of why they thought the way they thought going in. However, in that moment, you it's clear that they were motivated to engage uh, because of the pain that they saw and felt and sensed that was uh that was that era of of colonial america so for those pastors this is really a, a great uh, picture of where we are today for many pastors that feel like frederick that until something happens it's it's hard to get pastors motivated or for them to feel like they can step into this arena of engagement in our culture, and you see it and I see it, uh, what do you say to not just the pastors, but to the people in the pulpits who know their pastors should maybe do something? Right. So uh, so again, most common form of government's kings, Calvinist Puritan, 1600s, a plan for us to rule ourselves without a king, great plan, 1700s, Lutheran pietists, and they spark revivals that spread to other denominations in the Wesleys, and it's more than a plan, it's in a personal experience. And, but if, when you have this, you're going to withdraw. And so have you ever met anybody that says, oh, I don't get involved in politics. I'm, I'm, I just preach the gospel. Every We're week. just a gospel church. Every week. And, uh, <laughs> and I'm a little more spiritual than you are because I'm holier because I'm not involved. Yeah. And you're still involved in worldly things. And so you just haven't reached the same spiritual. So, someday you'll get as spiritual as I am and you'll withdraw from that came from these Lutheran pietists. And so I talked to those type of people. I said, what do you do with Numbers chapter 30? Numbers chapter 30, what's that? Well, that's the silence equal, equals consent chapter of the Bible. It has a half a dozen scenarios. One is if a daughter is still living in her father's house and binds herself with a vow. In the day the father hears it, if he is silent, her vows stand. If he disallows the vow, she's released from it. That's come down to us as vows in a wedding ceremony. And the pastor says, if you're silent church members, you're giving consent to these wedding vows. Yeah. So if there's anyone present who knows of any reason why this couple shall not be joined together in holy matrimony, speak now forever, hold your peace. If you're silent, 
holding your peace. You're giving consent. It's called the rule of tacit admission, T-A-C-I-T. It's in Black's Law Dictionary. An admission reasonably inferable from a party's failure to act or speak. And it's in the Bible. And so you have the Apostle Paul in Acts 22 talking to the Lord. And he says, when they shed the blood of your martyr Stephen, I stood there silent consenting to his death. Paul did not throw a stone. Paul did not speak up and egg them on. Paul stood there silent and he knew he was guilty for the death of Stephen. You have um, uh, Leviticus 20. It says, when you enter the promised land, if any member of the community sacrifices their child to Moloch, that person shall be put to death. If the members of the community close their eyes when that man sacrifices one of his children to Molech, I myself will set my face against that member of the community that closes their eyes and cut them off from Israel. And so all you have to do is close your eyes when they do it. You know, everyone knows Leviticus 19.18. Love your neighbor as yourself. Do you know the verse right before that? It says, confront your neighbor directly so you will not be held guilty for their sin. <laughs> the very verse before love your neighbor as yourself says, rebuke your neighbor directly so you will not be held guilty for their sin. Yeah. So we have um, in Numbers 20 is Moses and Aaron, and the Lord calls them to the door of the tabernacle and says, Moses, take the rod, gather the assembly, speak to the rock, water will come out. Moses gathers the assembly, takes the rod and hits the rock once, hits the rock tr twice, water comes out. End of the chapter, God says, take Aaron to the top of the mountain and he's going to die there. Aaron is not going to go into the promised land because both of you rebelled against me at the waters of Meribah. It's like, both of you? Aaron didn't say anything. He didn't do anything. That's just it. He heard God tell Moses, speak to the rock. When Moses lifted up the rod the first time, that probably took Aaron by surprise. That was Moses' sin. When Moses lifted up the rod the second time, Aaron knew what was coming, and he did not protest. He was silent, and in that instant, he was guilty, and he didn't get to go into the promised land. You know, Jehoiakim, this wicked king, is taking Jeremiah's prophecy with a penknife and cutting it out and burning it in the fire. Yeah. And all the princes of Israel stood around, and it says that they did not tear their clothes, and they did not protest. Except there was the one guy, El Nathan, and he, like, interceded, like, King, are you sure you want to do this? <laughs> but, but they were silent, and they were clearly, the Scripture verses, condemning them for standing there silent. It's like Eli his sons are doing wicked stuff. And he was silent. And so when you're, and, and Mordecai tells Esther, there's a mandate from the government to kill the Jews. If you're silent, you and your family are going to be killed. Yep. And God will deliver the Jews some other way. Yeah. And we have to realize that, um, so pastors and church members, if they're killing kids in your community and you're silent, you are killing kids in the community. Uh, Leviticus 5, it says, if somebody takes God's name in front of you and you are silent, you are taking God's name in vain. Yeah. yeah. There are sins of commission and sins of omission. It's just as much of a sin. So God's doing a dividing. Some people are doing evil and some people are silent in the face of evil. And by their silence, they're giving consent. They're siding. They're agreeing with evil and they're going in that direction. There ain't going to be no evil in heaven. Amen. And there's other people that says, you know, I stretched the rubber band and tolerated something I didn't feel good about. And I stretched the rubber band a little bit more and tolerated something else. But I'm sorry, I cannot go with Satan worshiping Grammys 
and Disney coming one working on a cartoon for the with the Antichrist name and, and California having a bill to kill babies 28 days after I'm sorry I can't go there and you cut the rubber band and it snaps back and you say well since I don't care about what people think about me anymore I'm going to be more excited about Jesus than ever <laughs> I like and you, you know Bill that's where we are and it's they're having their Frederick uh, Muhlenberg moment uh, and the pain, uh, whatever it is, that makes it so that I can't do this, I can't tolerate this. Just like Muhlenberg sitting in St. John's Church and listening to Patrick Henry and the, the light bulb goes off and I, that's it, I'm in. And I pray that pastors around America will will get it and it'll land in their lap and they'll respond. It's, it's a joy to have Bill Federer with me for this episode of Right to the Point. And I want to mention... Uh, a couple of the books Bill mentioned, Who's the King in America, uh, Rise of the Tyrant, uh, also America's God and Country Encyclopedia of Quotations. Those are in my office. And as a pastor, I found, Bill, that as I began to talk about the issues and weave in these historical facts, that people begin to understand as well who we are and who we're called to be. Well, I tell you what, Bill is making himself available for another session, another uh, episode of Right to the Point. Uh, thank you so much for tuning in to learn more about LifePoint, uh, to access past episodes of Right to the Point podcast and commentary. If you'd like to support the podcast, visit lifepointusa.org. Also, Visit AmericanMinute.com, and you can uh, peruse all of Bill's publications, all of his books, and you know, listen, that American Minute commentary is something you need to be receiving as well. So, Bill, thanks for joining me for Right to the Point. God bless you, friend. Thank you, Tim. <laughs>